Brian did Luke 14 this morning. I want to go back to Luke 10, and especially the parable of the Good Samaritan, one of the most familiar stories in the whole Bible, one of the good bits that everyone likes, um, uh, a story that I thought that I got, and probably, this is the third time in the past 10 years that I've looked at it, and I confess I've been greatly influenced by my wife's favorite preacher, Timothy Keller, uh, who uh, talks a great deal about this parable and also the parable of the prodigal son. And uh, he talks about how he studied this passage alone, just this one passage, for a period of three years. And it so influenced his life that him, he changed his life. It compelled him to move from being a professor in a theological seminary to go to New York and to begin working in the center of New York. Now, I think one of the difficulties we have with the passage is most people just don't get it. We understand it as Jesus saying, now be nice to people, even people you don't know, send money to Oxfam, do some, some good things. And I think when we hear a sermon on this, we do expect a preacher to tug at our heartstrings and our consciences so that we'll go and we'll do more. And when you read this parable, I don't think there's anybody here who's going to say, I'm the Pharisee and I'm the Levite. They're the bad guys. We all like to think that we're the Samaritan who can give a wee helping hand to someone in need and help them on their way. But I don't, I agree completely with Keller, that is not what this parable is saying. The parable is asking some very real questions about what it means to be a Christian and how <coughs> do I inherit eternal life. Look at them, verse 25. See, the Bible's quite easy when you actually read the Bible and stop thinking that we know it. You look at what it says. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And it's from that point, the parable is an answer to that question. How do I inherit eternal life? How do I become a Christian? An expert in the law comes to Jesus. He's an expert in theology. He wants to quiz and test Jesus with a little theological discussion. Here's a man who knew the Bible, and yet there was a certain obstinacy and pride. I think there's a danger that we can delight in religious talk, we can delight in theological talk, but not really seek after eternal life and knowing God better. But this man does. At least he comes and he asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You'll notice how Jesus responds, and for those of you who are interested in what we call apologetics, that is, seeking to defend the Christian faith, it's really evangelism, how do we communicate the Christian faith? When someone asks you a question... It's a generally good principle to ask them a question back, not to avoid, but to find out what they're really saying, or, in this case, for Jesus to challenge him. Jesus responds to the question by asking a question, what's written in the law, he replies, how do you read it? The law expert then, of course, as a law expert would, immediately quotes the Bible. He quotes Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, and Leviticus 19, verse 18, and he says, this is what you do. 
Jesus doesn't contradict him. Jesus then says, okay, do this and you'll live. Now, the man struggles with that answer. Look at verse 29. He wanted to justify himself. He wanted to justify himself. He knew that it wasn't enough. When Jesus said, do this and you will live, he knew that the man could not say, I love God with all my heart, with all my soul, and with all my mind. And if you think about it, there isn't a single person here who can say that. You can't keep that law. There are two ways to heaven. One is to keep the law. To love God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. The way of love. The way of law. And the other, as we'll see in a moment, let me say what it is. But let me just back off from that a little bit. Because there are people who say, yeah, I'm not into all that law. I'm into love. And I'm into loving Jesus. And I'm into the, you know, loving other people and so on. And I don't believe all this Bible stuff. I think incredibly legalistic. You lay this great emphasis on teaching the Bible. People say that. But here's a thought for you. When someone says they're into love and they don't define or say what it means or they just take it like this, then what's happening is they are putting down a law that's impossible for anyone to fulfill. You don't know what love is, you don't know who you are, and you don't know who God is. If you say, I love the Lord my God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my strength, and I love my neighbor as myself. I'll guarantee that there isn't a single person here who loves their neighbor as herself. I don't. I absolutely don't. We never keep that standard. Archbishop William Temple, talking about this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, he said... Do you know what your Christianity is? It's what you do with your solitude. It's what you think about. It's where your mind loves to dwell. It was interesting for me to sit in this morning and to be here not preaching and just listening to God's word. And I enjoyed it very much. But it was good for me to be in your position because it helped me realize how quickly your mind can wander. You know, Brian said a couple of things, and I went, ooh, I just started. And at one point, I, I even, I have to confess this, at one point I even thought, I wonder what the cricket score is, which is not, it just, that was just a random thought that came into my head, and I apologize uh, for even saying that. But what happens is, lots of things just come into our minds. Lots of things preoccupy our hearts. It is not often, sometimes yes, but it is not often that our minds are absorbed with who God is and with who Christ is. And so when we say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, if you can say, yeah, that's, I think about God and I want to serve God and so on. I think if you met somebody like that, you would probably think they were a bit weird and you wouldn't believe them. Where does your mind love to dwell? What about loving your neighbor? Again, stop and think about that. Meet the needs of your neighbor as you would yourself. Seek their happiness as much as you do your own. Jesus says the law is right. 
You should love God at that level and love your neighbor like that. And he says, do it. Go ahead. Do it. He says to the, to the good works person in religion, the liberal theologian who says, well, you just got to love God. The Bible's just about love. You've got to love God and love your neighbor. And Jesus doesn't argue. He just says, do it. Go on. Do it. And he can't. This religious man can't. And nobody can. We live that way, we'll get to heaven. But we don't and we can't. And the expert in the law understands it. So it says he wants to justify himself. And he asks, who is my neighbor? He's saying, surely it's not just anybody. The man works on the basis that virtually all human beings do. That until we are convicted of our need and sinned by the Holy Spirit, God will accept me if I'm good enough. And this is what he says. He's really saying, look, if I'm good enough to my neighbor... You know, okay, I do a few things that are wrong, but if I do this amount of good and this amount of right, then surely God will accept me. I'm I'm not good enough to be a super saint, but surely I'm not bad enough to be condemned by God. And again, it's interesting what Jesus is saying, because he really says that he tells the whole of this parable to show the man that he is not good enough. The expert asks, what's the minimum standard for me getting to heaven? And we end up with the parable of the Good Samaritan. A parable where the hero meets basic human needs through his deeds. He meets emotional, physical, financial, medical, transportation, and so on. And Jesus is saying, this is the very core of the gospel. In Galatians 2 verse 10, after the Apostle Paul had been converted, he talks about how he went up to Jerusalem and how Peter, James, and John were reluctant to receive him because he persecuted, Paul had persecuted the church. And eventually they met with him, they became persuaded that God had truly converted him, that God had called him to go and take the gospel to the Gentiles. They endorsed that and he said, the one thing they asked was the one thing I wanted to do. And that was that we should remember the poor. Now, what this is not, what the parable of the Good Samaritan is not, what that Galatian passage is not, what the Matthew 25 passage is not, it's not teaching a good works gospel that if you do enough, you'll please God and you'll get into heaven. It's saying that you, you, you have to, within yourself, be so changed that you will desire to help and care for other people. And the story that Jesus tells is just so radical in the sense of it talks about just such a change in someone's lifestyle and a change within society because of that. What are the limits? That's what the man is saying. Who's my neighbor? What are the limits? You imagine the priest and the Levite in this story being interviewed after the event. What would they have said? They couldn't have claimed they didn't know, and they couldn't have claimed that they didn't see. And they couldn't just have said they couldn't be bothered. They don't care, like in 1 John 3 verse 16, where a man, you see a brother in need and you don't care and you don't do anything for them, then how can you say that you're a believer? I suspect that they would have made the same excuses that you and I would have made, that we do make, and I suspect we are much more like the priest and the Levite than we would like to think. I was suspicious. There's a naked man lying at the side of the road. We came out of church this morning, and as we're driving down the road, 
I saw a man stumble and bang his nose and he started bleeding. You know what my instant thought was? My wife is a much more godly and saintly person than me because she thought, oh no, that man's fallen over, stop, go and speak to him. My instant thought was he's probably drunk. You're suspicious. There's a man, a naked man, lying at the side of the road. What are you going to do? You're automatically going to be suspicious. Is he drunk? Is he out of his mind? Is he high on drugs? Maybe they also thought, I don't have the time. I was on my way to a meeting. I had to get back to my family. I've had a really bad day. Someone else will look after him. Maybe they thought, I don't have the resources. It's too much. It's so overwhelming. The need is just so massive. Here's a man who's in a bad way. He needs somebody to look after him. But that somebody can't be me. Or maybe they just thought, I've had enough on my plate. You've no idea the stress and strain I'm under. I've got problems at home. I've got financial worries. I've got work concerns. I haven't been feeling too well lately. And when you think about it, we all have plenty of excuses about why we don't do things to help people. Because fundamentally, we are self-absorbed and selfish people. And even when we help people, it is really about ourselves. We choose good works, we choose churches, we choose the nice things that we do. An awful lot of it is about helping ourselves. So the man asks, what limits? Jesus says, no limits. No limits to who you want to help. It's natural to want to give to people who are like you. We do that. There are people we know and love. We give to people we can identify with. But Jesus puts the Jew and the Samaritan here to say that your neighbor is anybody. He meets the needs, this man, this Samaritan, meets the needs of people who are out with his circle and out with his social sphere. When a humanist or a secularist or an atheist tries to explain how human beings can be moral and good to one another, they tend to explain it in terms of something that they call reciprocal altruism. Reciprocal altruism is very simple. It's, you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. So, I'll invite you to my house for a meal because you will invite me to your house for a meal. We are kind to people so that they will be kind to us. And we do that particularly with people who are like us. But Jesus teaches something that is really, really different. That we are to love even those who are our enemies. The Samaritans and the Jews had two different religions and each one thought the other was blasphemous. And yet here is a Samaritan who sacrifices and shows such love that it astonishes people. Christians are meant to be like that. We're meant to be people for whom men will see our good deeds and glorify our Father in heaven. If you read reports of the early church in the Roman Empire, what you will find is Roman governors like Pliny and others, they, they write with astonishment of how the Christians look not after only their own poor, but also ours or the Roman poor. Who are we to care for? Jesus says there is no limit. When? Is there a limit? And when we help people. Sometimes there are people who get into trouble because of an accident. 
Sometimes people get into trouble because it's their fault. Sometimes you hear of, I, I heard a, a minister recently talking about, there are no such things as the deserving poor. If you're poor, it's because it's your fault. Jonathan Edwards, the great American theologian, wrote a fantastic work about the duty of love to the poor. He deals with the question when someone says, they're not really poor. Really poor people are in Africa. These people aren't really poor. I only have to help them when they are really poor. And Edward says, I only have to help them when they are destitute. That is not agreeable to the law of Jesus. We get concerned about our situation and do something about it long before we become destitute. Love your neighbor as yourself. What about people who brought their trouble on themselves? People who've harmed themselves in different ways because of their own actions, because of their own sin. Surely I don't have to help people who've done that. Again, Edwards replied, but Christ loved you. Christ pitied you. Christ gave himself out to relieve you from all that want and misery which you brought on yourself by your own folly. Should we not love others as Christ has loved us? That's the standard. Who, when? We love as Christ loved us. Think about who you invite into your home. Think about who you speak to in church. Think about who you socialize with. If you are a stranger in the church here, I hope someone does speak to you and warmly welcome you. Because you are warmly welcome. Sometimes it is interesting to be the stranger in a strange land. I was speaking yesterday uh, at a conference in Kyle. And because it was a presbytery meeting, at one point I actually had to leave And I was standing outside the door, not being allowed in. Um, And it was quite funny when I first went in, because the people who were there obviously didn't think I was the speaker. And they didn't know who I was. I wasn't part of their group. I was a stranger. It was just very interesting to experience that. And I think sometimes we need to think about that very, very carefully. We are to show the love of Christ to all whom we meet, wherever we meet them. How much? Keller says this is a a familiar argument. I can't afford to help people. On the Jericho Road, this road was from Jerusalem to Jericho. Jerusalem was 3,000 feet. Jericho was 17 miles away, 1,000 feet. It was through mountains, crags, and caves. There were plenty places for thieves to hide. It was dark. The man's attacked. Stripped naked, beaten, and left half dead. He is in great need. It's a very dangerous place. The robbers are probably still around. When the Samaritan stops, what he does, and the point of the story is this, he risks everything. He risks everything. He not only stops and bandages him, he takes him to, I was going to say his car, but his donkey, but let's just say his car, takes him to his car, pays for his hotel, and gives a blank check. That's quite extraordinary. Look at verse 35. The next day he took out two silver coins, gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. He's saying, put it on my tab. It really costs. Again, Jonathan Edwards, we may, by the rules of the gospel, be obliged to give to others when we cannot do so without suffering ourselves. We may, by the rules of the gospel, be obliged to give to others when we cannot do so without suffering ourselves you see we've bought into our culture which says we give what is extra what we don't need but we live in a culture where i'll guarantee that most of us here we actually genuinely believe we're in need i believe i'm in need 
I think I need this, I need this, I need that, I need more money for this, I need... We all think we're in need. But the rules of the gospel turn that round. Keller says this, commenting on, on this Anne Edwards' own comment. When people say I can't afford to give, they mean I can't afford to give without it burdening me, hurting my living standards. And Jesus says, yes, that's the point. In fact, if you can afford to help, you're not helping enough. You have to share and to experience some of their burden and their difficulty, or it becomes the worst kind of charity, which is patronizing and self-absorbed. It's funny. We've grown up in a culture where we think doing a wee bit to help somebody is such a meritorious act. And Jesus just comes along and challenges the whole thing and says, no, it's not. It's not. It's not. This is who your neighbor is, and this is how you have to behave. Now, we're going to look at a moment just how that happens how we can live like that, because I don't think we can. I think that's the point of the parable where Jesus is saying to the teacher in the law, you've got it, you yourself have a great need. And uh, we'll look at that in a moment, but I want us to sing another song. We're going to sing, Here is Love, Vast as the Ocean. Now, it's important to realize morality doesn't work, whether secular or religious. A secular morality says that an enlightened, progressive person will give to the poor. The religious morality says that you give to the poor because the Bible or the Quran or whatever commands it. Both motivate you through guilt. You have so much, they have so little. Feel bad, give it away. The priest and the Levite are both moral. It's actually their job to give to the poor. They distributed the alms to the poor. That was their duty. That was their conscience. They would ordinarily give to the poor. But when it's going to cost them something... When they're going to have to risk their lives, morality is not enough. That's incidentally why when we rely upon the state just to provide everything, we get it wrong because the notion is that the state will provide and the state will provide for me and nobody gets hurt. It doesn't cost anyone anything. It always costs. It always costs. I'm not going to make a political point, but in England, your prescription charges are going up to £7.40 and in Scotland, they're going to zero. Now, for me, the amount of times I visit the chemist and the doctor, that's really good news. And people say, well, that's free. Actually, it's not. Someone's paying. Someone pays. It's always the case that someone is paying. Whether or not that's a good or a bad thing, uh, in, in terms of the prescription charges, I'm not going to say. But the notion that things just happen, that they're just free, that's not the case. There's always a cost that is involved. The question is not really whether we are motivated by guilt to give. The question is, are we really Christians at all? Are we going to inherit eternal life? In Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46, Jesus answers that question when he says, no, you're not, because you didn't visit the people in prison. You didn't give to the poor and so on. Robert Murray McShane, when he was in Edinburgh, and he was um, uh, uh, well off in the sense of the family he came from. He was a student. His dad was uh, a lawyer, a top lawyer. He was a student for the ministry. He had a very pleasant life. For the first time in his life, he was asked by a man called Thomas Chalmers, who was one of his professors, to go and visit on a Saturday morning in the grass market in Edinburgh. 
Grass market in Edinburgh is now a kind of yuppie place. Then it wasn't. It stank. People were crowded into homes. The average uh, family, half the children died before they were five years old. It was, there was no running water. There was gross immorality, gross poverty, gross injustice. McShane visited with Andrew Boner and he wrote a letter afterwards in which he said, I really doubt if I'm a Christian. He actually said, how can the love of God dwell in me? That there is such poverty and such injustice in my own city and I didn't even know about it. I didn't know. How can the love of God dwell in me? Feeling guilty is not enough. Looking to the one who can take away the guilt is. Jesus is not saying here, look how bad you are because you don't help the poor. That's not what he's saying. And I I was greatly helped in this, again, uh, by, by Keller's work on this, where he says, the legal expert in this is not on the donkey coming across a Samaritan who's been beaten up and is told by Jesus, that's what you should do to your enemies. He's talking about the man himself who's been beaten up. What if your life is ebbing out? What if your only hope was an act of free grace? What if it was an act of a neighbor that you did not deserve from someone who owed you nothing? The man who's been beaten up has just, it's just incredible what has happened to him. There's a complete change of heart and perspective. Jesus is actually saying, look, you need, he's saying to the, to the Pharisee, you need to have a complete change of heart and perspective. You're the one actually who needs saved. Not the person who's being beaten up. You're the one who's relying on your, yourself and your self-righteousness and your ability to ask theological questions. And the fact that you ask thinking I can give you an answer which you can then go and do. Someone much closer to Jesus was the prostitute Mary Magdalene who could hardly believe that Jesus would save her. But because she was saved, she reacted with radical love and she'd have been a great neighbor. When you've been saved by someone who doesn't owe you, it gets rid of the moralism and pride. And that's why a Christian who's self-righteous, a Christian who doesn't care, a Christian who's pompous, is a, somebody you've just got to ask and say, are you really a Christian at all? Until we experience salvation ourselves, we'll never be able to give it. I did um, a debate which will go out in about five weeks' time on Premier Radio um, with uh, a man who's a former Anglican vicar who became an atheist and who is now an agnostic, he says, and he's written a book (coughs) on why agnosticism is the best thing and it's just about to come out. And we had a discussion which actually got very personal in terms of the debate. And he said, how can you possibly tell people that they will know God? How can you know God? And I said to him, I want to ask you a very personal question. Please feel free not to answer it. But he did answer it. I said, when you were an Anglican vicar, did you know God? And he said, no. I said, well, in that case, you have no idea how to answer that question. You didn't know God, and yet you were teaching the Bible. You were meant to be teaching the Bible. Who was neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers. Verse 36. Not 
Who is my neighbor? Who was neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The one who showed mercy. The expert in the law. He probably couldn't say the Samaritan. Didn't like Samaritans. Was stuck in his throat. The gospel changes us. The gospel changes our hearts. We're all self-justifiers. We're all controlled by what we set our hearts on. Jesus is not saying this is a way of life. He's saying this is the way to life. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a propitiation for our sins. Galatians 2.20, the son of God loved me and gave himself for me. In a strange kind of way, you've got to see yourself in this parable, not as the good Samaritan, not as the Pharisee, not as the Levite. You've got to see yourself as the person who's helpless, beaten up, can't respond. And you need Jesus as your good Samaritan so that you can become a good Samaritan. In other words, you have to be saved in order to be able to help save other people. We become neighbors, if you like, in that way. We have to re-neighbor ourselves. We have to open our eyes. We have to see the people who are, as it were, on the Jericho Road. We have to see the needs all around us. We mustn't let the racism and the bigotry and the class consciousness and the differences put us off seeking to help other people. We have to love people and help them whether they believe or not. We don't say we're going to help people in order that they will become believers. (coughs) We help people because we are believers. And of course we are concerned for their body and their soul. They always go together and they always have done in real Christianity. So being practical about this, yes, we are going to be suspicious. We have to be realistic. But we're not in a position to judge and we should never write off anybody. Use your brain, but don't be judgmental or cynical. God has his people. You don't know who they are. We need to be a lot less cynical And seek to try and help people as much as we can. Because of the love of Christ that moves us. What about time? We don't have the time. That's true, we don't. We need to make time. We need to prioritize. We need to spend one less day on the computer. One less hour watching TV. We need to be more disciplined. We need to be planned. Things don't just happen. We don't fill our diary every hour of every day, every day of every week, and every week of every year because then we don't have time. We don't have time to help anybody. We don't have resources. Yes, we do. We've got Christ and we've got the church. We are not supposed to save the world, but we are the arms and body of Christ. We work with our brothers and sisters. And again, that's why it's so important to work together as a church. It's so, so, so important. Everyone has their part to play. We have the resources. We say we're just too busy. We're just tied up with everything. We're, we've got a full plate. We've got too much to carry. You're, you're now wanting to lay the burden of people who are in need, but you should see what the situation I've got to deal with in my family. You should see the situation I've got to deal with in my work. You should see the situation I've got to deal with in my own health. I've just got enough just coping with myself. Well, if you've got a full plate, empty it. And how you do that is simple. You cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
Sometimes we, we do make mountains out of molehills. We have as massive problems in our lives, things that are relatively insignificant. My favorite Indian proverb is this, I complained of having no shoes until I met a man with no feet. A considerable amount of our stress and strain is self-imposed and culturally imposed, a, a Western individualistic, materialistic mindset. There are many real stresses and many real strains, but we need a sense of proportion and a sense of perspective, and we need to learn to trust God. And as we do that, we're far more able to help other people. Three things to finish. I think we need to continually repent. To repent of our attitudes, our tight-fistedness, our pride, our racism, our self-righteousness, our snobbery. Of only inviting people we like or people who can give something to us. And we need to repent so that we see our desperate need. When someone else is in need and we don't see it, there's a sense in which... We are almost a lot worse off. We need to repent ourselves. That there's a world that's broken. That there's a society that's in a mess. And we shrug our shoulders and walk on by. We have a real need. We need to return and to receive. We need to return to Jesus Christ. To receive his grace, mercy and forgiveness. To know that he has provided for all our salvation. And we need to reciprocate. We can't give back to Christ. No matter what you say, you can't, you can't say, well, Jesus gave me this, so I'm giving it back to him. No. You can't do that, not literally. But Matthew 25, 40 tells us this. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. And that changes your world. And that changes your attitude. Even to your literal neighbors, those noisy neighbors, those obnoxious neighbors. Because... Whenever you do something for them, even take out their bin, look after their dog, cook them something. Whenever you you help, the attitude should be, actually, you did it for me. We do it for Jesus Christ. And when we say, no, I can't, I haven't time, I can't be bothered, what we're really saying is, I don't have time for Jesus. And you can come to church and worship all you want. And you can read the Bible all you want, and you can pray all you want. But if it's not going to be put into practice, if you don't have time for Jesus, how do you think he can have time for you and for me? Now, there's so, there's so, so much in all of that. And it is worth us reflecting on. But I, I, I do want to make a plea to those of us. First of all, well, let me make a plea to those of you who are not Christians. You might, even listening to this, think, oh, thank goodness I'm not a Christian. I can just go away and be myself and don't have to worry about all that. Well, actually you do. We, we live in a world and you need to know and come to Christ. And I would plead with you to find out about that. It's a great life to be set free from being self-absorbed. And so please do come to Christ. But for those of us who are Christians, honestly, our biggest stumbling block, my biggest stumbling block, your biggest stumbling block this evening, is just simply we are so self-absorbed. We'll do the wee things. We'll do the things that don't really inconvenience. We'll be hassled and stressed and, and, and lots and lots of different things. We don't very often 
Some do, I know that, and I, I'm not trying to have a go at people. But we don't very often think about loving the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength, and with all our mind, and loving our neighbor as ourselves. We hide behind grace. We say, God's grace will forgive me. God's grace will do this. God's grace. And we, we, we become lazy. And we don't help. We don't care. We don't provide. And I, I, I'm just arguing from this passage that what Christ is telling us is that being a Christian is so much more than we have made it. Just take time this week to reflect upon this. And all the busyness of your life, just take some time out to think, Lord, am I doing so much that I don't have time to help? Because I'll tell you what will happen. Some of you will feel really guilty about this, and you'll say, that's right, I've got to go and do something else onto everything that you're already doing. And sometimes you just have to back off and you just have to say, you know, there's a cost here. I may not earn so much money. I may not have so much time for personal recreation. I may not be able to play as much as I wanted. But I really do want to see people who are on the Jericho Road and I want to for the sake and the glory of Jesus Christ, be able to help and to serve them. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. A story that is just so familiar to so many of us, and yet one that never fails to challenge and to provoke. Lord, we are the person who's in need of a good Samaritan, and you are the good Samaritan. And you call us to follow you and to serve you and to be like you and to do what you have done. Help us so that we may serve the poor and the needy. That we may serve those who we might almost be inclined to despise in order to justify ourselves. Help us, O oh Lord, to have your eyes as we walk through this world this week. That we may not be the kind of people who are continually irritated and irked and annoyed and upset and angry at other people. But instead, grant that we would have the grace and the mercy to give freely of our time and of our money and of ourselves. In order that we might be set free, that this world might be a better place and that you might be glorified. In your name we ask it. Amen.